This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So the discussion around what happened with First Republic Bank and what we can learn from that failure continues, and it makes some of us on the outside wonder if what happened is a bit of a one-time event or if it's something that should bring forward more scrutiny. Peter Connie Brown, Associate Professor of Financial Regulation as well as Associate Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School, joins us with more on that. Peter, it has been a while, my friend. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Dan. All right. So as all of this is playing out, your thoughts were what? What was rolling through your head at that point? Well, unlike the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and, uh, and Signature Bank, the First Republic uh, uh, problems were telegraphed many, many weeks in advance. Shortly after the collapse of SVB, uh, First Republic received this, this consortium of, of uh, loans, deposits, uh, from some of its, its larger rivals orchestrated by the Treasury. Now, this is something that at the time, uh, markets and others viewed as a, a, a kind of a Hail Mary, a stopgap, if it was the case that First Republic could sustain its funding model, which was to have uh, a, a pretty large um, uh, stable of, uh, of uninsured deposits, then maybe it could weather the storm. That didn't work out. And so as First Republic was caroming over the edge, it became very clear that uh, it was insolvent and it wasn't going to be able to weather weather that storm. And so the question then became, wait, what's, uh, when is this when is this going to happen? Let's get on, get on with it already. So it was the, one of the least uh, surprising bank failures that I can remember. So with the failure that does occur and with J.P. Morgan stepping in, what needs to occur moving forward or does something need to occur moving forward to ensure that something like First Republic does not occur again. I don't think we should ever have a banking system that has that kind of insurance. We want banks to be able to fail. Uh, we want them to be able to fail in an orderly way, and sometimes that uh, the order uh, calls for an acquisition. Uh, so we certainly don't want to stress-proof the, the system so completely that no banks could ever fail, ever. First Republic made a really uh, uh, idiosyncratic, not totally unique, a strategic decision uh, a few years ago that wanted to bank very high net worth individuals and provide for them financial services that we often see uh, uh, happening more through brokerages and other uh, and other uh, financial institutions that provide those financial services. To do this, it gave really really attractive terms for uh, loans of of all kinds, including mortgages. Um, the likes of which that ordinary folk never encounter. Uh, and uh, it also uh, invited those same high net worth individuals to be uh, to put all their deposits at the bank. Now that that worked pretty well for the for the bank for a long time. But when we've got this kind of compression on on interest rates and when we have a regional bank, uh, or a mid-sized bank crisis, First Republic really uh, got squeezed. It wasn't quite as breathtaking the risk-taking that Silicon Valley Bank took, uh, but it was it was a, a calculated risk, and it just didn't work out. And so I think what we want to have is a system that permits those kinds of failures. And and it is true, some people will, are not happy about the fact that the largest bank in the world has just gotten quite a bit larger. Um, but uh, that's the nature of things. If you if you have banks of the size of First Republic. Uh, we need to be have a system where such banks could fail, 
And what that failure means, usually, is acquisition. And the only kinds of banks that could acquire a bank the size of First Republic would be in the league of J.P. Morgan Chase. I've also heard some commentary about about the stress tests and whether or not the stress tests were not as effective in an interest rate environment of around 4 to 5%, especially considering they were kind of first designed and brought to the table in an environment of, of basically 0%. Stress tests refer to a, a whole suite of supervisory mechanisms, the different kinds of, of exams and, uh, and, and reports and exercises. The main thing that we call a stress test is something that uh, Congress pulled back on, the Fed pulled back even further, uh, and, and would not have captured because of those changes in 2018, 2019, um, would not have captured banks of the size of First Republic. Um, that they could have, and that's a really important conversation for us to have. Should we have those kinds of things? So that's the first part. There was a, there were some some gaps it's, uh, in in the ways that we think about this, but we've got to understand that the 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 compressions that we saw on net interest income for First Republic and especially for SVB are not the kinds of things you need a sophisticated model to predict. Bank supervisors did see these. They flagged them. Uh, we know this now. Uh, we knew this from reporting. We know it now because the Fed had a report on SVB. We assume it's true also for, for First Republic. And the question then becomes, well, if why didn't the bankers at First Republic respond more quickly to the need to diversify their assets? Because if they'd done that, then it would have been much easier to, to stem the flow of depositors out of of First Republic. Those depositors were not acting irrationally. They were acting very rationally. First Republic didn't have a, a model, uh, an investment model on their assets uh, that meant that they were going to be able to redeem all of the depart- deposit outflow. And so if you're a depositor at First Republic, it was extremely wise of you to leave that bank behind because it was just not a good business model. Uh, and so I think that uh, the stress tests are a bit of a red herring here. Um, it, it's possible that they could have flagged, we could redesign them so they flagged some of these issues, but the issues were already flagged. These were not secret. They were not surprises. We knew about them already. What What do you take then from this? And and as we move forward, what's what's to be learned from this failure as uh, as kind of a, a a better understanding of the banking sector in this day and age? I think we need to have a better sense of what supervisors should do when they flag these kinds of issues that could turn out to be catastrophic. We can't have a system where any line supervisor, these are the government employees that come and, and, and work uh, inside the banks to really kick their tires and see how healthy they are. We don't want a system where a line supervisor can all of a sudden suspend all banking activity for a single bank. Um, the number of red flags that supervisors see are much larger than the number of existential crises that banks will face. That said, what we have right now are bank supervisors who are kind of leaning on their back foot, and we, we don't want that either. And so a public conversation about how to strike the right balance between risk management that happens inside the bank by bankers and risk management that happens outside the bank by the government, um, I don't think that process is working as well as it might. Uh, and so we want to revisit probably how those conversations occur. Peter, great to have you with us. Thank you very much for your insight. All the best. All the best to you, Dan. Thanks so much. Thank you. Peter Connie Brown, Associate Professor of Financial Regulation and Associate Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School.
To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.